So in Genesis 49, there in that first verse, it said, Jacob called his sons and said, gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear you, sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. And of course, God had changed Jacob's name to Israel. And so the whole nation of Israel comes from him, these 12 sons. And as he's going through the sons, Judah was the fourth son through Leah. We know that Judah had betrayed. He was the betrayer of Joseph and had the idea to sell him to the Midianite slave traders when they were going down to Egypt. He sold him for 20 pieces of silver. But then Judah, years later in the rematch, was willing to become the slave so Benjamin wouldn't have to be a slave. So he learned that lesson. And so Judah went from goat to hero in this Genesis record. And if Joseph is the star actor of this story of Joseph, then Judah is the best supporting actor because what he let God do in his life to change him and transform him was glorious, which brings us to verse 8. After Jacob talks about Reuben and Simeon and Levi, which were not really good things that he had to say, in verse 8 he says this, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp, or literally like a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people." Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So these five verses are what Jacob speaks concerning Judah. He speaks pretty good things about most of the kids and he speaks incredibly wonderful things about Joseph later on in this chapter. But tonight it really is about Judah. As we've gone through Genesis and the dawn of creation, our origins, a young earth created with purpose, a perfect world lost, back there in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, God gave that prophecy in 3.15 that the seed would conquer the devil, the serpent. And that's the first prophecy of Jesus Christ, Genesis 3.15, that there's a promise that as the whole universe came under the law of entropy and decay from the sin of Adam. For in sin, for in Adam, all sin and die. And we know through the harmony of scripture that all creation, all the billions of stars and galaxies, they're all dying as they're expanding and it is directly related to the result of Adam's original sin created as a son of God for the glory of God in the Garden of Eden in fellowship with God. That first prophecy is a specific prophecy that a redeemer is going to come. That God has a plan to redeem the curse of sin that entered through Adam and Eve and entered every molecular structure of the entire universe in time, space, and matter. Thus, we even to this day, and even my beautiful granddaughter Clementine is visiting this weekend, she is born in sin. And the sin nature is literally in every cell of her body. She is a sinner. We are born in sin under the wrath of God alienated from God. For while we are yet enemies, Christ died for us. 
And that's true of the most beautiful grandkids. Now, you think your kids are beautiful. Wait till you have grandkids. That's when you really know what's beautiful. And you say, how could, how could Clementine ever be a sinner? She's a sinner. She's a sinner. Grand, grandkids grow up and they become just like your adult kids. They're sinful. They have a sinful nature. And that first prophecy is God's response to sin. And we're told in Romans 5 that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. For as death entered through Adam and thus death spread to all men, so the second Adam, Christ, life comes through Christ to all men through faith in him. Now, as we progress through Genesis and we saw Enoch, a type of the church who walked with God and was called up to be with God and did not die, we saw a world go through judgment, which the world has pending upon itself right now with Noah, but God sealed Noah through the flood. Then we saw Abrahamic promises, and there in Genesis 12, God said that through Abraham, his seed, all the nations would be blessed. And that seed, we're told in the New Testament, capital S, again, is Jesus Christ in Galatians. So there's a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ in the Abrahamic calling and promise there in Genesis. When Abraham took Isaac up to Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, that's a type of the gospel because there at Mount Moriah, he was a type of what the father would do with his son 2,000 years later. So we have prophecies and we have types. And then even Joseph himself is a type of Jesus where he was rejected by his brethren the first time but revealed to his brethren the second time and worshiped by them. And even so with Jesus Christ, rejected by the Jews the first time, we were told by Zechariah that every eye will see him when he comes back, even those who pierce him, and they will praise him. So in this book of Genesis, book of beginnings, we see the prophecies from the very beginning. We see the types, and we see these things coming to pass. And here and now, we have a great prophecy concerning Judah that is the strongest prophecy yet that gives us clarity and direction toward Jesus Christ the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Savior of the world. And it really is all about Jesus. Of course, Genesis to Revelation is all about Jesus. And it really is about the relationship that God wants to have with all of us through faith in His Son, Jesus, that He sent to die on the cross for our sins and to rise from the grave for our hope and justification. And here in this prophecy, Jacob, at 147 years of age, and again, those of you that are familiar with assisted living or memory care or take care of elderly people or can get a little fuzzy and different things happen. Jacob, the very last days of his life, filled with the Holy Spirit, is prophesying how his descendants would affect all humanity. All of humanity, us tonight. Every one of us in this room on this March 7th, 2020, the hope that we have of gathering and singing these songs is directly related to this prophecy of Judah and the, the moving of the things from the Old Testament of these prophecies and types to Christ ultimately coming and who he is and where he's at. For Christ died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave for our justification, ascended to the right hand of the Father where he ever lives and intercedes for us, and he's coming again in glory. And this passage declares that. It's a prophecy. So the Old Testament is a shadow of things to come, but the fullness is Christ. And the shadow here is so profound in this prophecy concerning Judah. We see here with Judah that we are told of these 12 sons who would become 12 tribes. Verse 8, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. 
Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. We were singing that on that last song. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Now, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Judah because Jesus, of course, comes from the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Israel, through the line and the tribe of Judah. It's critical. That's why in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, it takes us through Judah because he has to come through Judah. The king of the Jews, the Messiah, the savior of the world, just cannot be a descendant of Abraham because Abraham has Arabic descendants as well, right? Ishmael and the others. He has to be a descendant of Abraham through the son of promise, Isaac, which is the Jews. Then... That's, he's got to be descendant through Isaac, through his son Jacob, not Esau. He can't be an Edomite. So the two twins, he can't be a descendant of the one twin, Esau. He's got to be a descendant of the twin Jacob, who God changed his name to Israel. Then of the 12 sons of the 12 tribes, he's got to be a descendant of Judah. These are very specific, deliberate, absolute prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, his person coming through the Virgin Mary. This is absolute. It's very important. I mean, it just, God says concerning prophecy, put me to the test. I declare things to you before they happen, and that's how you know I'm a God. I'm God and the only God, and there are no other gods. He talked in Isaiah about how people vainly build idols and worship these things that fall down that can't help them in the moment, let alone tell the future before it happens, but God is outside of time. So here outside of time, thousands of years before Christ came, and thousands of years since Christ came, we can look back at these scriptures this passage, and see this to be so. Of the 12 tribes, the Messiah had to come from Judah. Now, a thousand years after this, when the kings began to come into power, of course, the first king of Israel around 1000 BC, 3000 years ago, was Saul. But he was the child of Benjamin. But God rejected him for his rebellion. And God chose David from the house of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, was from the tribe of Judah. Thus, the kingly line for Israel as it began to have kings, after Saul is rejected by the Lord and that line is cut off, the kingly line runs through David of the tribe of Judah, Solomon from the tribe of Judah. Now, we know around 930 BC that after Solomon is passing and because of his sin and all that, that God divides the kingdom, and the ten tribes in the north become their own kingdom, and they follow Jeroboam, but Rehoboam is Solomon's son, and he's from Judah. He's bloodline of the tribe of Judah. Every subsequent king runs through Rehoboam for the southern kingdom. So Uzziah, Jehoshaphat, Asa, all those kings, the good kings, above average kings, below average kings, they all run through the tribe of Judah. Essentially, there was 20 kings from the tribe of Judah that reigned from the time of David, 1000 BC, to the time of captivity was Zedekiah, 586 BC, full captivity. So they had a run of about 500 plus years. That's a long time, right? 500 years is a long time. Think how the United States is only a couple hundred plus change. It's a long time. And they were there in Jerusalem, based out of Jerusalem, and they were the kings. They fulfilled this passage. All those kings. Now, they're in the divided kingdom with Jeroboam up in the north. There are about 20 kings as well. So the bad kings like Ahab and the bad queen Jezebel and all them, they're in the north. But just know this, in the northern kingdom, there was not one good king. 
When you go through Kings and Chronicles, the Old Testament, there's not one good king. Judah had quite a few good kings, including Hezekiah down the back end, and then Josiah, and, and then some more, right? Okay, so this came to pass. We know this as a historical fact that this came to pass, a biblical historical fact, and they're always one and the same. And they, in fact, reigned, and the people came to them. Think about Solomon, how the people came, how the queen of Sheba came to pay homage to Solomon. They reigned. They were the kings. They were the good kings, and they reigned. And they reigned. And thus we know that even after the Babylonian captivity, when they all came back under Ezra and they rebuilt the temple and then the walls through Nehemiah, there were descendants of Judah that were there in the land. And ultimately, Mary is a descendant of Judah, the virgin birth that brings the king, the king of the Jews. And what is Jesus called on the cross? King of the Jews in three languages. King of the Jews. So the very title of Jesus on the cross shows fulfillment of this, that he's the king of the Jews and he's of the the tribe of Judah and he came to his own. Now, they rejected him and that fulfills a lot of prophecies as well of other books and whatnot. But all Israel bowed to the kings of Judah. And we're told that in Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So ultimately, all Israel bows the knee to King Jesus, the King of the Jews, and all the universe bows to King Jesus, King of the universe, because he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the lamb in his first coming, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he's the lion in his second coming. But it's important to understand that of these 12 brothers, Judah is set aside, Judah, the beginning of Judah, the beginning of the tribe of Judah, the beginning of the kings of Judah, before David, before Solomon, before all of them, They all come from this man, this bloodline, his genealogy, right up to Jesus, the genealogy through Mary the Virgin. And history confirms it. Now, I do have one thought about application here. He was, he's the preeminent one. Judah was the preeminent one. In the 12 sons, he's the preeminent one to reign. We're told that Jesus Christ in Colossians is the preeminent one in his church. So we want Jesus to reign over everything here. We want him to reign over the leadership, the serving congregation, the congregation. We want him to reign. We're singing these songs, great and mighty, because he reigns. We're worshiping him because he reigns. This is a house of worship, and we're worshiping Jesus. He reigns. He's a preeminent one. We're collectively doing that, and as leadership, we seek the Lord and how we're being used by him to expand his kingdom and serve his people. But he reigns. He's the preeminent one. But we have to ask ourselves, does he reign in us? Like that song, Open Space. Because as much as Jesus is, in fact, the one that walks in the midst of the churches, Revelation chapters 2 and 3 of the seven churches, he is a preeminent one. And whether we let him be preeminent in our lives or not, he's still preeminent over the universe. Because as we're told in Colossians, all things are in him and through him and held together by him. So when we think about Judah reigning over his brothers and those kings that come from Judah, really it's about trusting Jesus to reign over us and leading us. He's the good shepherd. He leads us. Like David said in Psalm 23, we want Christ reigning over every thought, action of our life, our walk, 
our talk and everything in between. We want to praise him. The other tribes would praise Judah at times and the people of Judah would praise the kings at times. We want to praise the king of kings. That praise would be in our hearts. Like First Peter says that we offer up and lift up the sacrifices of praise. That praise would be our disposition toward the Lord. That we'd say praise the Lord because we see his hand in every good thing. That, I mean, like today was such a beautiful day. Like, it's one of those days when you go by the beach and you see Catalina and there's the blue and the puffy clouds. It's just so beautiful. It's just like, praise the Lord. Like, don't, that, that's what creation's meant to make us do. God wants us to look at the mountains. It's like that when it, we got that little dusting last week, when it got cold on Sunday night and we had that little bit of rain, I thought, I bet it's snowing. It's cold. And next morning I saw the snow. Yeah, it's like, and you know, before the smog settles in, we always have like one day. And it's like, praise the Lord. It's so beautiful. God, you're so good. And you praise and you ever walk through your neighborhood and look at all the different flowers he's made? When you get a grandkid, you should. Just walk around the neighborhood with a grandkid. You point out every little flower, every little detail. You even see the little bugs on the flowers. The hibiscus, oh, Clem, look at that little thing. What is that? Oh, Clem, smell this yellow rose. This one smells really good. And you just see his handiwork and his details. It's just so beautiful. Praise the Lord. Because what did Jesus say? Hey, if these people don't praise me, the rocks will praise me. Praise the Lord. Praise him in our hearts because God is good. We'll praise the Lakers and LeBron. We'll praise governments and people power. We'll praise money people like Bill Gates. We'll praise all kinds of human beings that are flawed and sinful, even in their highest moment of glory. We want to praise the Lord because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He is the king of kings and he is worthy of all our praises to lead us and guide us in every empty space of our life. We want him to fill it. Which brings us to the line of the tribe of Judah because the second thing we see here is that verse nine, Judah is a lion's whelp or like a cub from the prey, my son, you've gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? Judah is called a lion. And if we have any uncertainty over where this really takes us, we just need to go to Revelation chapter 5, where Jesus is being worshipped, where we're told he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus being worshipped by every tongue, tribe, and nation represented in the throne room, we are told that he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's the title the Holy Spirit gives us for him being worshipped in heaven by the church in that heavenly scene. So this lion's whelp of Judah described here for us thousands of years before Christ came and now looking back 4,000 years later to this prophecy, of course, Jesus has many different names to help us understand who he is. He's the bread of life. He meets our needs, right? And he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the lamb of God who lays down his life for the sheep. So when we're called to sacrifice and let things go, we're the lamb of God. When we're trying to trust in him to meet our bills, he's our bread of life. And when we're afraid, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the lion. Of course, C.S. Lewis, the famous writer, caught this vision clearly and expounded it incredibly without equal in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, 
where Aslan, the lion, is representative of Jesus Christ. And when you read the Chronicles of Narnia, the seven books, he presents Jesus in many different ways that are all biblically based, particularly like uh, the horse and his boy, which is a very unusual one of the books of the seven. It's the most unique in the Chronicles of Narnia, where Aslan was with the boy the whole way, who's the prince, and he didn't know it, but he, he heard him as a cat. He heard him as a, a lion. Like, he presented himself in different imagery to the horse, to the boy and his horse, who is going to be a future king of Ashland. And it's just really cool, like, how he got that. And that voice of the Lord, although it can roar, and when we need to hear it roar, he will roar, but he's also the still small voice. Oh, he's the voice of the wind, and he's the voice of the thunder, right? Elijah didn't hear him in those ways, but he still spoke in those ways to other people in the Bible. So whether you hear Jesus as a, a quiet kitten or a roaring lion, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the lion is king of the jungle. And the lion reigns. And God gives us the visual of meeting us where we're at, just like Jesus says, I am the vine, you're the branches. That's a visual to meet us where we're at. Well, he's the lion, but he's not just any lion. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so when we think about being over his brothers, that's a preeminent one amongst Israel and over the world. But as the lion of the tribe of Judah, that's the all-powerful one. And we know that God is all-powerful. And that the Father commits all judgments and authority to the Son. So we serve the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We serve Aslan. We serve one who roars. The prophet said, a lion has roared and who can but prophesy in the Old Testament. That the voice of the Lord was like a roaring lion and the, the boldness to roar, like the lion. And the prophets, the boldness comes because when you hear the voice of the lion whether you're Lucy with a little knife facing the bad guys in the line, the witch, in the wardrobe, or whether you're full of boldness as it would appear to people, he's got our back, and he's roaring. He's roaring behind us. He's roaring for his kingdom. Man, when Aslan roars, every knee bows. And Aslan, for C.S. Lewis, who's now with Aslan, Jesus Christ, is the line of the tribe of Judah, and he roars over everything and everybody in this universe. He roars over our fears. He roars over our enemies. He roars over our insecurities. He roars over all the uncertainties. He roars. He's the roaring lion. And who can resist the lion? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the final authority in this prophecy confirmed by reality of the universe. He's the final authority. And so in application, we think Jesus is the lion that roars, and he's over our life, and he's the authority over our life. We got, you know, C.S. Lewis books, like, they did the movies, and they were good. I mean, like, they weren't great, but they were, they were pretty good. And you had the old BBC ones of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe done back in the 80s that were pretty good, too. But there is one scene in Prince Caspian where they're on the bridge, and Lucy is is going after the bad guys, and she's got a little knife. And she's going like this, and all the bad guys are backing up, but what they're seeing is Aslan behind her. She's like, she's got her knife going like this, and they're all backing up. She's like, yeah, you want some of this? You know, that kind of a thing. But it's really because they're seeing Aslan just like, 
You know, and that's who we have behind us. Fear no evil. Fear no evil. Because we serve the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's who's over this church. That's who we want to have over our lives. A lion is roaring, who can but prophesy? When the Lord's like, hey, step out in faith, go to the Middle East. Hey, do this, go to Russia, go here, do this. Hey, give this, let go of that. It's just like the lion's just going, rah. And when you hear the rah, whether it's soft or loud to you in your volume reading, man, let's go. Let's go. We got the roar of the lion, the king of Judah behind us. And by the way, when the title's given to him in Revelation 5, what's so radical about the context of that title is that's right after John's weeping because the deed for title earth, no one is worthy to receive it, to open the seals. And he's sobbing because earth is in bondage. And from his perspective, no one is worthy to come and receive the scrolls to exercise the authority and the redemption of planet earth. But then worthy is the lamb who's also the lion of Judah who goes and receives the scrolls. That's the context of the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The context is Jesus Christ redeeming his people, judging the world righteously and perfectly according to his character, because everything he does is just and true and noble and praiseworthy, and getting ready to come to establish the kingdom. So when we think about application, he's the final authority over our life. And if he said to the church 2,000 years ago, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, go there now for, go therefore now and make disciples of all nations, That's the authority. That's the authority we go in. Sam and I were discussing Russia last night. I got my visa. I got my visa to go to Russia. Unlimited access for the next year. I got it last week. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, thanks, Frank. So, I mean, we're praying about it. It took a little longer than normal with everything going on with, you know, coronavirus and all that. I'm like, you know, I've been watching the news in Russia, and believe me, they're not messing around. It's the Russian way not to mess around with stuff like that. And I'm like, hmm, you know. <laughs> and Sam said, so what's your plan? And the plan is still to go in May to the pastor's conference for Calvary Chapels in St. Petersburg and hook up with Pasha and you know, fly into Moscow, connect with Pasha, maybe go to Redeemer, and then go to the conference. But like everything else getting canceled around the world in the last week, maybe that's going to get canceled. And Sam said, well, is that a sign not to go? I'm like, no, I can't say that is a sign not to go. Just because a pastor's conference gets canceled doesn't mean I'm not called to go to Russia in May, right? I, I don't know, like me, like it's been on my heart all along. I, I work on Russian almost every day. Well, actually, I do every day, and I, the language, and I have a giant map of Russia on my wall, and I, I think about Russia. I got a chalkboard with all the words I have the hardest time remembering. Stormic, you know, just different words, just different words, just numbers, stuff like that. You know, like all the, you know, when you learn the language, all the things you learn, like, Day, month, week, days of the week, you know, Vosterkinia, you know, just all these, like you, these things you begin to put together when you learn language. And I just, I wake up and I look at them because I, I got this board there and I, when I half wake up, I'm like, oh yeah, okay. That's how you, that's how I learned Spanish and it's there. So if I'm called to go to Russia in May, or not called to go to Russia in May, while the pastor's conference is a reason to go to Russia in May, and I've spoken with Posh even recently before he was heading down to Latin America and then Cuba, the Lord knows. He's certainly bigger than something that's scaring the whole planet, right? I mean, I'm, trust, I'm trusting him to raise me from the grave, and I'm getting closer to it, just like you. I always say, like, hey, whatever scares you, you nothing should scare you like the grave. And if, 
I buried my mom two months ago. I put her remains from the container from the morgue in the urn in Cleveland when it's snowing outside. And I asked the ladies at the cemetery, could you please close the door so my relatives don't see me have to do this? Let me tell you, we're all facing the grave. I spent Christmas with my mom, and I buried her remains three weeks later in Cleveland, Ohio. And the grave is what really we should fear, if you're going to fear anything. And yet, Jesus Christ has conquered in his authority, the devil, the power of sin, and the grave. So, he's the final authority that will raise you and I from the grave. And we can trust him as the final authority to roar over our life and to help us fulfill whatever it is he's called us to do. Roar! like to roar over our life. So let the lion roar and step out in the authority of the roaring lion to do what he's called you to do, whether the planet's in meltdown mode or not, because we're still here. We're trusting him to raise us from the grave. So reverse engineering that, we can trust him for anything and everything he could possibly call us to do until we're in the grave. Amen? He's the lion the tribe of Judah, and he's got the title deed. He's going to raise us up. He's promised that. By the way, that's a verse my mom wanted read at her funeral and gravesite. I listened to my sister read 1 Thessalonians 4 at the memorial at St. Francis, and I listened to her read it graveside, the cemetery. And my brother read Ecclesiastes chapter 3 at both as well. Some of you are at my mom's memorial in Vista. My brother got and read, did the same thing. Graveside, gray, overcast, right out of a movie. Same thing, man. To everything, turn, turn. And then my sister, but we will be raised up and we'll be caught up together and thus we'll be with the Lord forever. First Thessalonians 4. The lion's roaring. Then verse 10, we read this. The third one, so we have preeminence and power or authority. And then we have the peace. The scepter, which is to rule and reign, shall not depart from Judah. So those kings all reigned during that time. Then they went into captivity from the descendants through Mary the Virgin comes Jesus, who is the king of the Jews on the cross. And the scepter has not departed. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's the great high priest. He ever lives and intercedes for us. We come boldly to his throne of grace in time of need. It is still in action and then we're told that nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Now, the word Shiloh means peace. There was, of course, a city in Israel, a village or town called Shiloh. It means peace. But this is Shiloh the person because it says, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So this Judah, his descendants, the brothers will praise him for he'll rule over them. Judah is the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus who reigns over them. And then he's the scepter that never departs because he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And his name is Peace, which is so ironic when you think about this. Not ironic, just so amazing how God connects things. But remember, Melchizedek was the king of peace that met Abraham on the way back from the slaughter of the kings. We're told that Jesus is the prince of peace. And we're told, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. Jesus said, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives. Peace is a title 
for Jesus. So he's the ruler. That's a title, king. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, but his name literally is peace. And of course, Jerusalem means city of peace. And he reigns from the city of David and Mount Jeru- from Jerusalem. He's the prince of peace. He's the king of peace. And he brings peace. He will keep the imperfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee because he trusts in thee, Isaiah the prophet said. And the peace isn't just the promises of God believed in 700 B.C. from the words of Isaiah the prophet, but the peace is through receiving Jesus Christ. Thus, as those apostles went out in the early church sharing the good news of the gospel with all authority of the line of the tribe of Judah, they preached peace. Ephesians chapter 2 is all about peace, God reconciling that which was enmity among people because we've been reconciled through peace with God vertically, then we can have peace with people horizontally. But his kingdom is a kingdom of peace. Shiloh means peace. Jesus is our peace. So when we think about the turmoil that goes on around us, he's our peace. He's also a lawgiver. If you look at this passage, now those kings were to uh, honor God's law. There was great revival under Hezekiah with the law of God. There was even greater revival with Josiah with the law of God. When Josiah came to reign, he sent out all of his guys on the horses to reinstitute the Passover feast and the reading of the law, the word. It's amazing what they did. And whenever it went good in Israel, it was because the king of Judah believed the word of God and had it taught and proclaimed. Even when Ezra came back from the captivity, they read the law on a platform verbally in the rain, in the cold, because it's the word that's going to guide the people. So Jesus is the word, of course. He's the word of God, John chapter 1, manifest in the flesh. He taught the word with the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said that you shall not... You know, murder, but I tell you, when you hate your brother, you are in danger of murder. You've heard that a man shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, when you love for a woman, you have committed adultery. He said this, I didn't come to cancel the law, I came to fulfill the law. And his perfect life fulfills the law, but his teachings show us the royal law. Just reading Exodus 21 this morning from God's law on the law of slavery and how to treat your brethren who basically were employees, seven-year contracts, and how to treat the women who were in those seven-year contracts as slaves. God is such a defender of the defenseless. And it was just so beautiful how he defended the rights of women in his law in Exodus 21 on the laws of slavery. God's law is perfect. And as Galatians says, it's a perfect law. We just can't keep it. It's not gonna, we're not going to justify ourselves by it. But Jesus fulfills it because he fulfilled the law. He lived the perfect life, the perfect sinless life. So we can read Exodus 21, 22, 23, 24. The details are longer like, wow, who could do this? Well, Jesus did it. And there's something beautiful here. His, his, his love for humanity. And all I could think when I finished that portion of Scripture this morning is like the royal law of love. If you just do for others what you'd have him do for you, which is what Jesus taught. God fulfilled it. Jesus Christ fulfilled it, and it's beautiful. So we can't save ourselves through it, but it's a tutor that points us to Jesus who did fulfill it, and we're saved through him. And thus, then we're told when in the New Testament, when Jewish believers want to go back to the Old Testament, the apostles are like, why are you going backwards? Christ fulfilled it. We're not going to put this on anybody. We can't save ourselves through self-righteousness. We're saved by grace through faith. That's what Peter said there in Acts 15. And that's what the New Testament affirms. 
And thus, when Paul was writing the Romans, he said, the whole law of the lawgiver, Moses is the ultimate lawgiver, right? He received the law of God. And the whole law is fulfilled in this. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. You love God. What is the great commandments? They asked Jesus, the, the guy, and Jesus said, to love God and to love your neighbor. These are the great commandments. So the lawgiver, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Jesus has always reigned and will always reign. Just because he rejected in his first coming doesn't mean he doesn't reign. He reigns right now. There's nothing happens on this planet. It doesn't come through the filter of his purposes and plans. And the law has not departed. God doesn't change. Society's changed. And what they think is morally right or wrong might change. But God doesn't change. God is light and him is no darkness at all. The law doesn't change. He's never changed. There's no shadow of turning with the father of lights. He's consistent in his character. We might be inconsistent in our character. He is consistent. Never changes. God is light and him is no darkness at all. And until Shiloh comes, he is peace. He comes and he brings peace. The whole message of the gospel is peace. And isn't it wonderful that Jesus has a title of peace? Well, you can call a village Shiloh. Great. But the one we worship is peace. Jesus isn't trying to wipe out the world. He's trying to save the world because he came and died on the cross to save the world. There's a lot of angry human philosophies and religions that have killed the masses by the millions. But Jesus Christ doesn't, God doesn't take our sons. He gave his son, Shiloh, peace, the lawgiver and the law fulfiller. So really when we think about it, it's like we want to be abiding in that peace. And we're told that through prayer and supplication we can make our request being made known to God and that peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So peace is the mark. You know, like, there can be turmoil around you. Look at Jacob's life. There can be craziness around you. But we just have to stop, recalibrate. Lord, you're in charge. What day ever goes the way you plan it in your day planner? Not many. There's always things happening. The human experience is a, is a messy business. But God's peace, Shiloh, who is peace, guards our hearts and minds and keeps us in perfect peace because we trust in him. And that's a result of abiding in him and being committed to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, verse 10. That's who we obey. Isn't it great to know when you bow the knee to Jesus Christ, you're bowing to the ultimate authority who's the lion who roars on behalf of his people and that he gives peace to his people and everything he does is good. And all of his promises are yes and amen. Praise the Lord. It's an amazing, beautiful prophecy from 2,000 years before the time Christ came, speaking to us of who he is, what he would do, and what he does, and what he'll do when he comes to establish his kingdom, because he is coming. So be encouraged and keep our eyes on Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, let us lay aside every weight and sin that so easily ensnares us and keep our eyes on him.